Amen. Thank you, worship team. Church, you can take a quick seat this morning. Um, it is good to be in God's house this morning, isn't it? It's good to hear our, uh, it's good to hear our students uh, worshiping the Lord up front. It's been a while since they've played, and I am proud of you guys. It sounds wonderful, and so thank you very much. Thank you for being here, and I want to welcome and thank those who are tuning in online, Facebook, YouTube. It is good to be with you this morning, and whether you are here in person or whether you are tuning in on our live feed, uh, we want to thank you for, for being with us this morning. If you're a first-time guest or a visitor, you happened upon us on accident, you were invited, however you are here, either here or uh, virtually, um, I want to ask that you think about filling out a communication card for us that would help us out and get us information we could use uh, to get you information that you need for our ministry. And so if you're online, you can click the link in the comment section and fill that uh, communication out, communication card out. If you're here and want to fill one of those out, you can do it on our Church Center app. You can download our Church Center app, uh, push on the communication card link and fill it out there, and that would be wonderful. Church, we've ho we hope you've had a good week. I hope you've had a good week. It's been beautiful, um, other than a good storm yesterday, wasn't it? Um, but it is beautiful today, and it's good to be here. My name is Tyler. I'm the Youth and Families Pastor at, uh, here at the church in Newtown Road. Uh, I got a couple quick announcements. Number one, just an update about the food pantry and the donations that we've been receiving since March. We have given to local organizations, partnered with them to help with food pantry stuff, uh, delivering food to families in need, 98 bags of food and 140 first aid kits. All right, church. Yes, you can clap for that. Um, and, but the need is still great. And so, I, I, yes, we want to celebrate what we're doing, but we don't want to stop giving. Just because things are beginning to open up, we are still continuing to, to give. And if you want to bring in supplies or food, to give to those organizations throughout the week. You can do that by coming to the, the office building on the other side of the property and putting it into the, ba the basket, the bin that's sitting right outside the door. Or next Sunday, we will have baskets here right outside that you can bring things as you come to church on Sunday and drop them in the baskets and then they will get delivered to the organizations that need them. So thank you, and a continued challenge to continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus during this time. And I have heard uh, through Amy Hughes that the organizations we've partnered with are extremely appreciative of your efforts. So thank you, church, for what you're doing. Um, secondly, uh, if you are a family of kids in kids ministry or student ministry, um, be on the lookout in the next couple weeks. We are going to give some big announcements let you know what's happening in the fall as we roll things out, both Sunday morning, Wednesday night. But I just want to give you a heads up that those announcements are coming soon. Um, and as we pray and plan, uh, we look forward to giving you that information. And then also, thank you for your continued giving, your tithes and your offerings. Uh, each week, church, uh, we are blown away with what you are doing as you worship through your giving. And if you want to give this morning, there are boxes next to the doors as you exit. Um, I'm going to say a word of prayer for us, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Matt to uh, preach this morning. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here in your house this morning. 
to worship you, to grow closer together, to connect with, with you and each other. And I pray that you will speak through your word. Um, and we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. I, I, uh, I'm out of house arrest now, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was here and I uh, had a great, great visit with you guys, and then I headed south to visit my in-laws, and then I stopped at my parents' house, and, and then I got put on quarantine, like, like you do in this era. And uh, a pastor unable to connect with his people is kind of like a toy on the island of misfit toys, right? Like, it, it, like what, what use am I if I can't actually connect with you people, and I have missed you greatly, and I'm so thrilled to be able to be back with you six feet apart masked and veiled and uh, still able to connect. So I'm happy to be here this morning and to see all you folks. Um, I want to say a word of thanks to those guys who um, filled the pulpit in my absence, and I'm very, very thankful to serve at a church that has such a deep bench uh, that we know with confidence that there is a host of guys gathered here each week who have the ability and the giftings of God to open the word, to rightly divide it, to feed God's people the truth of the scriptures. So special thank you to Chad Thompson and to Pastor Tyler and last week to Simon Jones for serving the Lord by serving you guys and delivering those phenomenal messages uh, in my absence. What a great gift God has given our church and these multiple teachers. If, as we're beginning this morning, we're going to be in the, uh, in the 10th chapter of Mark. So you can grab your Bibles, go to the 10th chapter of Mark. Uh, we're going to begin in the 32nd verse. So Mark 10, 32 is where we're going to start this morning. And I'm going to read all the way to verse 45. So we're going to hit, we're going to hit like two things together, but they're kind of connected. Here's how, here's how Mark retells this part of Jesus' life. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Amen. Wow, we've got our work cut out for us this morning, don't we? All right, the first thing, as we, as we ponder what's going on here in, in Mark's gospel, the first portion of this passage is, is Jesus retelling again what is about to happen to him. And so I've, I've titled this part of the, the message, Still in the Dark, or, or maybe, if you will, The Third Time's a Charm. This is the third time Jesus has said to his disciples, in, in no uncertain terms, I'm going to be killed for you. And this is the third time that these men who have watched him walk on water, raise people from the dead, heal sick people, feed the masses, the third time that they completely miss the point again. Gosh, I love these guys. They give me such hope. The idea that Christians are people who have it all together and don't ever screw this up, I mean, gets blown out of the water every time you read a gospel and look at the lives of the disciples. So they're on the road again. They're moving up to Jerusalem. The reference here is to the elevation of Jerusalem. Essentially, however you get to Jerusalem, you're going up. And they're walking on the road. And the Bible says that Jesus is walking ahead of them. That he's out in front leading the way. That his face was set toward his mission. That he was intentional and diligent in this. And here he tells them one more time what's going to happen. Now, his disciples are there, the 12, but there's also a crowd of other followers with him. And they're afraid. They're wondering what's going on. They're wondering what awaits them. Jesus is not the most popular person among the religious crowd. So what is coming for them when they arrive in Jerusalem? They're a little bit intimidated by all of this. So he He gathers his disciples, and it it doesn't say that he's doing this in the hearing of the whole crowd, but he's pulling his 12 together, and he speaks to them. And he lets them know, once again, here's what's going to happen to him. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a favorite designation of Jesus when he's speaking about himself. It is a phrase with significant messianic connotations. All you have to do is is cross-reference Daniel 7 to see how how in the grand picture of the redemption of God's people and his plan for the kingdoms of the earth, the Son of Man plays a vital role. And the Son of Man bears a sufficient weight for Jesus' identity and his mission. He says the Son of Man will be, and he uses the phrase, delivered over. That he'll be delivered over and then will be delivered over again to the Gentiles. The words of the Bible are not haphazard, and they are not inconsequential. They are packed with meaning. The word delivered over is carrying a very significant message. Jesus was handed over by God himself. This was the prepared and preordained method that God had set forth before the foundations of the world to accomplish the salvation of mankind and to lay in place the plan for redemption. Paul, Paul uses that same phrase in Romans when he says that God delivered Jesus over for our sins. Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2 uses the same phrase, that Christ was delivered over by the eternal plan and purpose of God. Now what what point am I trying to make here this morning? It's this, that the death of Christ for our sins 
was the sovereignly ordained plan of God. Not one piece of the passion story is out of place in God's wisdom and sovereignty. We look at it and we see the travesty of injustice. We see Jesus the innocent being condemned for the guilty and we, we scream out, where is the one who is righteous in this to stop this madness? But I can assure you on the testimony of scriptures that before the foundations of the world, not one piece of this story is out of place. God is able to use the foolish and even the unjust things of this world to bring about his purposes. That should give us hope in this current season. He is able to work all of it together for good. And the story of the scriptures is of a God who sits on the throne over the pagan kings of this world and works it all together for his purpose and his glory. He delivered Jesus over. Jesus was not abducted by the Romans. He wasn't snatched away by the Jews. He was handed over by the foreknowledge and preordained plan of God. And what struck me most as I prepared this week is that Jesus knew all of that and he was still out in front leading the way. Not at the back, not mingling among the crowd. He was still setting the pace. He was in front of the crowd leading the way. He knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem and he kept going forward. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostility at the hands of wicked men. He's, he's pressing on. He's not, he's not stopping. He knows exactly what's happening, and he's leading the way. So there you have it. Another indication of what is to come, another prediction, another opportunity for these disciples to finally get it. You would think that after the third installment of this prediction, that some great effect would be seen in their hearts and in their minds maybe, that they, they would soften a bit, that they would be overwhelmed with gratitude that this suffering servant is willing to die for them. But as Mark has shown us repeatedly, that is not the case. The second thing we see this morning is a misplaced quest for glory. James and John, the sons of thunder, right? These are the same guys that are asking Jesus to call down fire from heaven, right? They, they were probably Baptists. They had to be. You know, it's, their, their passion gets a little bit beyond their resources. Okay, so James and John, fishermen turned disciples. They're walking with the disciples, and, and they're having a conversation amongst themselves, I guess, as brothers do. And they approach Jesus, notice that. They come to him with a new idea. They walk to the front of the line where Jesus is. After he's just said, hey guys, when I get there, by the way, they're going to hand me over, I'm going to get beaten, scourged, flogged, and die. And they walk up to him. Hey, listen, all that, all that talk about dying has got us thinking. <laughs> and we've been thinking about who really deserves the most glory here. So James and I, we, we have this, we got this plan, and I don't know, th these guys are great, but we feel like we might be greater. So we want you to do something for us, though, all right? Can, can you see how messed up this is? This gives me hope. These guys are me. <laughs> these guys are me. Experts at missing the point. 
thinking that somehow Jesus' mission is to make much of me. So they come up to the front of the line. They are deceived and intoxicated by their own sense of value and worth. They've come to the conclusion that of all the disciples, they have some deserved right to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in the glorious kingdom that he's establishing. (laughs) They come up to say, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Wow. Now, I don't know about you. I have children, four of them. The older they get, the bolder they get. And if that conversation happened in my house, and somebody came up to me and said, hey, Pop, listen, we want you to do something for us. We'd have a little conversation about how we request things in my home. Like there's something that just reeks of disrespect in that. And Jesus, rather than rebuking them, knowing already what's in their hearts and in their minds, we've seen that in Mark, he knows what's in the hearts of men, he knows exactly what they've been talking about, and he knows what they're going to ask him. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Hang on to that phrase, because we're coming back to it next week when blind Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road, and he asks him the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, great, Um, yeah, thanks for asking, Jesus. Uh, Listen, we were thinking, we've got this idea, and well, when, when, you, when you get there and you set up this kingdom in Jerusalem, you're going to need a quality team, right? You, you're going to need gifted and strong leaders, wise and shrewd administrators, people who know the difference between a perch and a bass. We were wondering if maybe we could sit at your right hand and at your left hand because we're the kind of people that need to be really important in your kingdom. <laughs> Now, in Jewish thought, the right hand was the position of highest honor. The left hand was just, just below. It's like one in 1A, one right? These guys just asked Jesus to be like the second most powerful people in his new kingdom, in his glorious kingdom. And I mean, of course, they have the resume for it. Like I said, they were fishermen, and they've bumbled along behind him now for like three years. Classic resume. These guys, they have it. They're ready. And And he says to them, with such gentleness. Now, again, as as a father, as an authority figure in my home, if I am approached with that level of flippancy and and kind of disrespect for, for authority, my response is not gentle and humble. It's to, I'm going to highlight for you the way God organized this system so that you can understand how you fit in here, Right? Like, it starts at the top, and me and your mom are at the top, and you guys are, like, way down the line. And he says to them, guys, you you don't know what you're asking. You're not thinking this situation through. He says to them, are you really able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the same baptism? He doesn't rebuke them directly. It's, It's a great response. Do you think that you're really able to follow me? Do you re- He's asking them, do you really know what it means to follow me in my kingdom? And for Jesus, and, and the, the scriptures are clear to this, his path to glory led through humility and suffering. It was the cup of God's wrath that was poured out on him on Calvary. It was 
It was that atoning sacrifice for our sins, the cup that he drank. He says, let this cup pass over me when he's praying in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's the cup of God's wrath poured out on the Lamb of God. He says to them, are you able to drink my, you want my glory? Do you have any idea how my glory is achieved? He says, you can't do that. You don't know what you're asking. His baptism is, a, is an immersion in suffering, beating and flogging and death. He's highlighting to the disciples that the nature of the kingdom of God is so different from the nature of the kingdoms of this world. He's highlighting that the glory that belongs to him comes through his suffering. And they were attempting to shortcut that route. There's a word in here for all of us. They were attempting to bypass the means of glorification and just get the benefits of glorification. Sometimes we as Christ's followers want him to stop the difficulty, stop the pain, stop the process and just get us to the end. And in doing so, we are short-circuiting his plan for our lives. For if we did not walk with him through the suffering, we would never arrive at the place of maturity and growth and glory. Which is why our prayers ought not always be, God, take the pain away, but strengthen me and comfort me in this suffering. Some of you know exactly what I talk about. Some of you, the last 15 years of a life, you are living a ministry of suffering. You've been there. And God doesn't just remove the pain, but he walks with you through it. These guys are short-circuiting his plan. Jesus' glory comes through humiliation and suffering and beating and execution. And they're like, hey, could we, could we bypass all that and just put us on the fast lane? And they say, listen to this. He's asking the question. The implication is clear. No, you cannot follow me. You don't have what it takes. And they say, yeah, we got that. We're good. Oh, the arrogance of these guys. Just like the rich young ruler. Yeah, I, I, I kept all the commandments from my birth. I'm good. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a righteous person. I got it. We're able. Yes, we're able. Oh, really? They're able to follow Jesus. They're able to drink the same cup. They're able to be baptized with the same baptism. They won't even stick around while he's being killed. They scatter like cockroaches. Yeah, we got you. We're good. And then he says this. It's, it's evidence they don't fully grasp what he's asking. Then, then he says, well, actually, guys, you are correct. For eventually you will drink the same cup. And you'll be baptized with the same baptism. Meaning what? They will suffer with him. It, it is God's plan for their lives. They get to be part of turning the world upside down, according to the book of Acts, right? They get to be part of that first wave of the church. These guys become pillars of the church of Jerusalem. They get to be part of this new unfolding plan of God. Yes, but the cost is great suffering. It's God's plan for them. He says, no, you're right. You will drink the cup. Maybe not today. And you'll be baptized with the same baptism. You will endure hardship for me. And you might not understand it now, but you definitely will walk a similar road. But he says, it's not mine to decide who sits at the right hand and the left hand. Hmm. Implying that it's the Father's role. That's, that's his decision. And those positions have already been filled. 
And verse 31 that we learned about last week gives us a good indication of the kind of people that fill those. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. So the positions on Jesus' right hand and left hand in glory are already filled, but probably not by people who you would expect. The other ten get angry. Predictably, these two jokers are trying to bypass that whole system. Peter's like, hold on, I thought I was the spokesperson. Like, I'm the loud mouth. I'm the one who gets to speak for us. They need to get in line. Right? The other guys begin to, to get angry because they wanted positions of authority for themselves. Alistair Begg noted this in his sermon that these guys, these future pillars of the church, are here arguing about who gets the best seats in the kingdom. What a demonstration of maturity and growth that the Spirit brings in the lives of people. For just in a few short years, these guys are champions of the gospel, living lives of humility, willing to suffer and die for Jesus. Here, here, in this, this unfortunate, we get to see their worst days of their life, don't we? On this unfortunate day, they're trying to compete for his glory. And then Jesus issues this word of warning. As the, as the disciples are stirred up, getting angry about who gets to sit in a position of authority, who gets the title, who gets the honor, Jesus said, listen, guys, I have, I have a warning for you about people who want to be great. You see, the disciples' quest for greatness, for honor, for power, for influence, led them down the path of the Gentiles. And the path of the Gentiles in leadership tends toward authoritarianism, tyranny, and exploitation. The path of the Gentiles is the path of this world. And if you want to know what it looks like to climb the ladder in the path of this world, just look at your workplace. Where people are willing to compromise, to exploit, to stab people in the backs, to lie, to, to claw their way to the top in a quest for some kind of affirmation that comes with a title, with a corner office, with a new nameplate on the wall, with the higher salary and the better benefit package. You've seen it, right? Like I don't, every one of you has seen it in your workplace. <laughs> he said, guys, the Gentiles are focused on leveraging power and influence for their own gain on ex at the expense of the vulnerable and the weak. The Gentiles focus on position and notoriety and acclaim, but not you. Because that's what they're doing. Right now they're fighting about position and notoriety and the nameplate and the corner office. And he says, guys, that's the way the people of this world handle authority, not you. You are supposed to be different. He's like, my kingdom isn't of this world. It doesn't work that way. My kingdom works differently. Greatness in my kingdom is displayed in serving. Honor is found in giving, not getting. And I will be to you the primary example of that. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear that? These guys are arguing up about positions of authority next to the king, and the king says, I've come to serve, not to be served. Follow my example. 
and I will serve you and this world by laying down my life as a ransom for many, by paying the price of the sin debt of this world, by rescuing and redeeming those lost in the clutches of our enemy. I will serve you by dying, not by building up my empire, but by laying my life down. I will be the greatest example of that. And the implication is, you follow me. All right, so what? I missed saying that, by the way. So what? What does all that mean for us? First, they missed it again. They missed it again. Wide left. They missed it entirely. The third time the disciples heard Jesus tell them what was going to happen, and they still failed to understand what he was saying. And from our perch in 21st century American Christianity, we might look at them with judgment, but this is a great reminder for us today of the dullness of our own senses when it comes to the work of God. Because far too often we miss what is so abundantly clear, and we fail to see what he is so plainly showing us. And we miss the meaning of what he speaks with precision. They missed it again. Good news, guys. We're in good company. These guys became the pillars of the church. These men turned the world upside down. You can trace your spiritual lineage to the work of God in Jerusalem among these men. (laughs) They got it eventually. That gives me hope. Not for you, Austin, but for me. I'm just kidding. It gives me hope that we'll get there. I'm going to mess this up. We're going to stumble and fall. There are so many times where it's so clear and yet I miss it. But it gives me hope that my patient shepherd is walking with me, gently dealing with my foolishness and rebellion, leading me on the way to maturity and growth. These men who struggle mightily here are leaders in the church, are heroes of our faith. What an amazing gift that God gave us to see a glimpse of their lives before they were who they became. What a good reminder for us who are struggling and limping along that we are not yet who God will one day make us, but by his mercy we're not who we used to be either. Secondly, There is something about this request for glory that is just so out of step with the way of Jesus. One of the most heartbreaking pieces of the story of James and John on the heels of hearing about Jesus' looming death is the way that they're seeking ways to increase their own glory and influence. This is not the way of Jesus. And perhaps today it will be a good warning for us to fight the urge to ride Jesus' coattails to positions of power and influence. Resist the temptation to seek for ourselves titles and positions and honor. To resist the urge to seek for ourselves the glory that is only Jesus's. He's told us that he doesn't share it with anyone. You see, God didn't pour out mercy and grace on us. God didn't lavish upon us, as Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that he could make us superstars and elite power brokers in the American church. We get that, right? Something happened 
inside the American church that we have imported into that culture the the American ideology of the self-made man and the power broker, the elite CEO. And that is not the way of Jesus. You want to be great, you serve. You want to be first, you be last. Lose yourself in the identity of Jesus. Quit telling everybody how great you are, patting yourselves on the back, looking for power, even within the church. Die to that, re- die to that urge for positions of honor and authority and power here. And instead, lose yourself in serving Jesus and trust him that eventually he'll work all of that out. The kingdom of God just doesn't work the way the kingdom of this world does. It's supposed to be different. Loved ones, we are supposed to be different. You see, there is a paradoxical nature in the kingdom of God. That he visits our lives with grace and mercy, not to make much of us, but so that we would find the all-surpassing joy of making much of him. That our lives would be wrapped up through death in the life of Jesus. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God, the third point, greatness in the kingdom of God is measured in terms of servitude. Serving Jesus and serving others. Life in the kingdom of God is found through death. Exaltation in the kingdom of God comes first through humility. Pride actually brings a fall. The more you give in the kingdom of God, the more you receive. It's like upside down and backwards from the kingdom of this world. It's supposed to be that way. And unfortunately, the church has become so indistinguishable from this world. I have become so indistinguishable from this world that it's difficult to see sometimes the life of the kingdom of God in us. So drawn along are we by the things of this place. You see, the kingdom of God runs counter to the kingdom of this world. Those who are citizens are to be distinguished in part because they have chosen to live like their king. They've chosen to lay down their lives and to serve. And in their service, they find a better and a more fruitful influence than they ever could have imagined. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if we as a church want to be great in the kingdom of God, if we want the legacy of this place to continue to be one where God's power resides and the message of the gospel changes lives, if we want to be great in God's kingdom, he's given us a plan. Do you know what it is? Die to ourselves and serve. Lay it all down. Quit caring about who gets the glory. Quit caring about who gets the credit. Just serve Jesus. Quit fighting for position and authority, jockeying for influence, leveraging your power at the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable, and instead, lose yourself in the all-surpassing joy of following Jesus as a congregation, as individuals. Jesus said to these guys, after they hear that he's going to die for them, and they think that that means that he should make much of them, he said, listen, guys, I didn't come for that. And if you want a lesson in greatness, here it is, you follow me. And out of all the people that have ever existed in this world, I actually have the right and the authority to demand to be served. And I'm willing to lay it all down. So you follow me. 
May God help us to die to ourselves every day, to live for Jesus, to find the joy of serving him and serving others and allowing this this unhealthy quest for glory and influence and power to be burned up in the glorious grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the message of the scriptures. Thank you for the kingdom of God that it is not like the kingdom of this world. Because the kingdom of this world doesn't lead us to peace and to joy and to hope, forgiveness and life everlasting. The kingdom of this world leads us to death and destruction. But God, you've done a new thing, a different thing. And we thank you for the message of the gospel that through your grace and through faith in Christ, we can be entering into that new kingdom. Have our sins forgiven. Have our lives changed. Have our consciences cleared. Have a home in heaven. And Lord, have an abundant life here. Lord, thank you for the harsh reminder today. It is, it is challenging to see ourselves in this story because too often we are like these disciples who miss the point and are trying to make much of ourselves. Forgive us, God, for that and help us to find the joy of making much of you. Help us to find our greatest satisfaction in this life, not in demanding our own prestige and honor, but in building your kingdom. Help us to be servants, first and foremost. Help us to find joy at the back of the line so that in your kingdom, we might attain greatness for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and stand with me and we'll continue to sing this morning.